What's up, everybody? This is Super Psy Guy here with another episode of Metas and Mutants. We know there's been a bit of a lack of content from us over the last few weeks. Unfortunately, real life has gotten in the way for both myself and Tombstone. But we're back here to give you some extra content and return to a semi-regular uploading. Unfortunately, Tombstone will not be with us for the foreseeable future. He has to step away and take some time to deal with his own stuff right now. It's not a permanent thing, but for now, it will just be myself. With that, let's get into the news section. Uh, Joel Kinnaman says the Suicide Squad is better than... Suicide Squad, because it's the film we set out to do. The actor reprises role of squad-leading Rick Flagg in writer-director James Gunn's new movie. Over the past year, filmmaker David Iyer has campaigned for Warner Brothers to release his cut of 2016 Suicide Squad, the superhero movie which was maligned by critics in its released version. Iyer insists... It was far removed from his vision for the project. It's frustrating because I made a really heartfelt drama and it got ripped to pieces and they tried to turn it into Deadpool, which it just wasn't meant to be, Iyer told EW's Derek Lawrence in March. I made an amazing movie. It's an amazing movie. It just scared the shit out of the executives. Uh, personally, I don't think it would have been that good just DCEU's history, but he's entitled to his opinion. Last week, Iyer returned to the subject of Suicide Squad after Screen Daily critic Tim Grierson wrote on Twitter that watching James Gunn's new movie, The Suicide Squad, he thought that David Iyer should just abandon the idea of a director's cut. I put my life into Suicide Squad, Iyer wrote in the course of a lengthy message explaining why he will not quit his quest. My cut is an intricate and emotional journey with some bad people who are shit on and discarded, a theme that resonates in my soul. The studio cut is not my movie. Iyer concluded the missive with kind words for gun writing, I'm so proud of James and excited for the success that's coming. I support WB and I'm thrilled the franchise is getting the legs it needs. None of this would have come as a surprise to Joel Kinnaman. The actor played the squad-leading Rick Flagg in Iyer's Suicide Squad and reprises his role in Gunn's movie. Alongside fellow franchise veterans Margot Robbie, Viola Davis, and Jai Courtney, the series newbies Idris Elba and John Cena, among many others, we had an amazing experience shooting the first film, says the actor. Some of the people that I got to know on that film are still some of my closest friends. So the OG squad, I mean, we're still texting with each other. But the vision of what that film was going to be, it wasn't clear to everyone, you know? It wasn't like the producers, the filmmaker, the studio, everyone had the same vision. There were conflicting visions of what the film was going to be, and sometimes with these big budget studio films, people start pulling at it from different directions, and then it doesn't really end up anywhere. 
I feel like that's what happened with the first Suicide Squad. It kind of ended up being neither here nor there. I think David was really setting out to do something much darker, much more emotional and nihilistic in a way, at least in his portrayal of the Joker, who was played by Jared Leto. His idea of the Joker, and I think the studio wanted something that was much more entertaining. I think the trailer for the first Suicide Squad really worked against us because it became so successful, but it wasn't really what the movie was like. And then I think they almost tried to reshape the movie to be more like the trailer, so there was complete division. Where Suicide Squad was mauled by critics, the Suicide Squad has received almost universally positive reviews and currently boasts a 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Kinnaman reveals he is much happier with The Suicide Squad compared to the release version of Suicide Squad, thanks to the finished result resembling so closely the director's initial blueprint. When I saw the film completed, I felt, yeah, this was the film that we set out to do. In this film, they trusted who James is, everyone has confidence in his vision, it was a joy to shoot the film, and what you see is very much the script. <clears throat> but then I was surprised, because it just seemed there were more layers to it. I didn't see in the script the emotional depths that I felt were very unpretentiously woven into the film. Obviously, I'm hugely biased here, but I felt that the made the film transcend the genre, and the big spectacle of it made something that was a real work of art as well. So, I mean, Kinnaman at least seems a lot more enthusiastic about the new Suicide Squad. For a simple reason, and it's hard to fault him. If you set out to do something, you're always going to be happier when it actually comes out like what you intended to do. If it gets remixed, remastered, changed constantly and it doesn't resemble what you originally set out to do, it's hard to be enthusiastic about the project. Next up, we have Michael B. Jordan developing his own Black Superman series about Valzad. Michael B. Jordan is reportedly developing a Superman limited series for HBO Max revolving around Valzad, a Black Superman from Earth 2. Despite being one of DC's most recognizable characters, Warner Brothers has not figured out how they want to use Superman on the big screen moving forward. Henry Cavill's days of playing Kal-El might be behind him, and all indications pointed to J.J. Abrams being the one to help reinvent Superman for the modern age. And this is kind of controversial. Henry Cavill killed the role. And the first movie, even though I didn't agree with a lot of the directorial direction it took, it was still a good movie. And he was a big part of that. Them wanting to recast him has kind of been rumored for a couple years now. And I think that's a mistake, but if they do it, Henry Cavill will absolutely find work. He has reportedly had multiple meetings with Marvel already. Plus, he has his role of, as Geralt on The Witcher. 
The thought of a new live-action Superman prompted plenty of discussions about what WB and DC should do differently. One suggestion that gained a lot of support was the idea of an actor of color playing Superman next. Abrams and the studio appeared to hear this, with reports surfacing that the Superman reboot will have a black actor play Clark Kent. This led to plenty of fan castings for Michael B. Jordan to play the Kryptonian hero. He's discussing Superman projects with WB and DC, or he has in the past, but now it appears he is making his own. According to a report from Collider, Michael B. Jordan's production company, Outlier Society, is developing a Superman project with HBO Max. A script is reportedly already being written by an unknown writer, and it focuses on the Val Zod version of Superman. Jordan's Black Superman project will reportedly be a limited series for a Warner Brothers streaming service. Jordan reportedly is only attached to produce at this stage, as he has not decided if he'll be the one to play the role. Val Zod is a Kryptonian from Earth-2 in the pages of DC Comics, who escaped from the planet with Kal-El and Kara Zor-El before its destruction. He remained hidden from humanity for several years until the Wonders, Earth-2's version of Justice League, came looking for him to help take down what appeared to be a brainwashed Superman. Valzod grew into his abilities from there and fought Darkseid's Superman clone named Brutal. Valzod was created by Tom Taylor, Nicholas Scott, and Rob Zenroka and made his debut in 2014. Although Valzod has some similarity to Kal-El's core values and origin, he is a unique character that has a lot of potential for a live-action adaptation. It will now be fascinating to see how Michael B. Jordan's Valzod Superman limited series develops from there. He is one of Hollywood's busiest stars and is now beginning to experiment with directing with Creed 3. Jordan's schedule might prove too busy to play Valzod for the HBO Max series if it moves forward quickly. But since it's not yet clear how big of a priority the series is, there's always a chance that another DC project announced that is never released. Hopefully that isn't what happens with this series, though. See, I'm a fan of this route. I'm not a huge fan of just changing such an iconic and established character's origin. Like, yes... Clark Kent's color isn't necessarily important to him, but he's been so well established as this white Midwestern small town kid who grew up. Valzad, on the other hand, has always been a black Superman, so telling that story is just a good idea if you want to have a black Superman. You're expanding the comic horizons for people who are more casual moviegoers, and it gives you a new story that isn't the same rehash. How many times does Uncle Ben need to die for Spider-Man? How many times do we have to see, you know, Clark Kent grow up in a small town for Superman? Like, we've seen that story so many times that this gives us a new story with a similar character that has the exact 
thing that they're looking to continue doing. Uh, next up, we have one what if comic was too dark for the Disney Plus show. Because a lot of the what if shows have been loosely based on various comics in the past, because what if has been around for a long time. Apparently they want to do an episode straight out of one of the 90s issues involving a mutated version of Spider-Man. It was rejected, on the other hand, for being too disturbing. During a recent podcast interview, one of the writers Marvel's for Marvel's What If series on Disney Plus revealed that a couple of the stories planned that did not make it to the finished series, one was an adaptation of the Marvel What If story from the 90s that was deemed too dark. As it turns out, a body horror concept that made it into print for 1996 uh, did not achieve the PG-13 rating that they're attempting for for what if to keep it in line with all the films uh, writer AC Bradley was on the post credit podcast and she was asked about ideas that didn't make it into what if and among others she noted there was a couple episodes that were just too dark there was an original what if run where spider-man turns into a real spider and like legs started ripping out of his back and growing out as his face mutated and demorphed and that is considered body horror and caused it to exceed the PG-13 rating I think it would give it a mature it wouldn't be rated R but it did count as a mature so it got scrapped the original comic book was June 1996's Arachnomorphosis from What If 88 by writer Ben Rabb, artists Ariel Olivetti and Augustin Komodo, colorist Marie Javins with additional enhancements by Malibu Cuddling, and letterer Richard Starkings. The book was the second issue in a then-new approach for the famous alternate reality comic book series, where the series would spotlight specifically darker alternate realities. In Arachnomorphosis, which has a strikingly disturbing Olivetti cover, for the time anyways, the story takes place in the future where Peter Parker and his son live in secluded existence. Peter is constantly studying both his and his son's body chemistry, hiding the fact that Ben is a mutant. Throughout the story, Peter starts to lose control of himself as he turns into a disturbing human-spider hybrid. After Ben is attacked by the son of Flash Thompson, his mutant powers reveal themselves and Flash's child is badly, and possibly fatally, injured. Flash forms a mob to get revenge, but Peter sacrifices himself so that his son can escape. At the end of the issue, we see that Ben has traveled all the way to Westchester to arrive at the Xavier Institute for Mutants. The story would have adapted well, but it has certain scary visuals that prevented the animation from keeping its PG-13 rating.
And this isn't the first uh, What If episode that got cancelled. Supposedly, there was a Guardians of the Galaxy episode that got scrapped because the What If on it turned it into the third act of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. So it's like, yeah, you can't do this because we're actually filming this. And last up on the news docket today is a rumor that the roster for NetherRealm's Marvel fighting game leaks. So the roster for NetherRealm's long-rumored Marvel fighting game has supposedly been leaked, according to Reddit user ComicCon Throwaway. NetherRealm Studios, creators of the hyper-successful Mortal Kombat and Injustice DC fighting games franchises, are developing a new fighting game property based on Marvel. The expansive roster for said game allegedly includes a mixture of popular characters and more obscure picks. The character list for the game includes Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Black Widow, Hawkeye, Wolverine, Black Panther, Spider-Man, Groot and Rocket as a duo character, Blade, Gamora, Moon Knight, Ghost Rider, and then you get into the more obscure, like Gambit, Shang-Chi, Kitty Pride, Invisible Woman, Mr. Fantastic, Hulk, Scar, who's the son of Hulk, Dr. Octopus, Blob, Mojo, Bullseye, Mephisto, Dokken, the uh, son of Wolverine, Arnim Zola, Venom, Abomination, Deacon Frost, who's one of Blade's villains, and Madame Mask. Beyond that already bursting roster, user Comic-Con Throwaway also mentions that Deadpool will be offered as a pre-order bonus, and the first DLC pack will include Daredevil, Cyclops, Raiden from the Mortal Kombat franchise, and Kylo Ren of the Star Wars franchise, which Marvel also, or not Marvel, but Disney also owns, and Marvel owns the comic rights to. The rumor goes on to say that the NetherRealm Marvel's fighting game will be loosely based on the World War Hulk storyline and have gameplay similar to that seen in Injustice. Many of the characters have been redesigned and reimagined for the game, while many iconic movie costumes will be added over time as DLC. While this rumor should be taken with a large handful of salt, as it is just a rumor, it's worth noting that NetherRealm has dropped several hints that it may be working on a Marvel-based project. In April, Ed Boon, Vice President and Creative Director at NetherRealm Studios, said that he and Marvel had a conversation about developing a fighting game. I probably shouldn't talk about it, but we would love to make a Marvel fighting game or a Marvel vs. DC fighting game. Boone has previously teased fans by tweeting, Wow, James Gunn has managed to work on DC and Marvel movies. That's impressive. Referring to James Gunn's work on Guardians of the Galaxy and Suicide Squad, many fans speculate that Boone is hinting that he too may direct projects from both Marvel and DC. 
In terms of licensed superhero projects, NetherRealm is responsible for Mortal Kombat versus DC, Injustice Gods Among Us, and Injustice 2. NetherRealm Studios' last project was Mortal Kombat 11, which was recently confirmed to receive no further DLC. The game was met with almost universal praise from fans and critics alike, and sports an expansive roster of both original and licensed characters. The Joker, Spawn, Robocop, and Terminator were all added to the game as DLC combat packs. And it'd be nice to get a good Marvel fighting game. I think the last one was, what was it? Um, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinity or whatever, and that one was not the greatest. I The best one that I can think of that was actually good, I think would have been, uh, where is it here? I have it somewhere on my computer, actually. But it's like Marvel vs. Capcom 3, I think it was. Which was great, but you're going back to old school arcade, which is, yeah, Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3. But, and you're going back to arcades for that one. So, on to today's issue, for those who have been following the podcast for a while. I have been very big on the Way of X comic featuring Nightcrawler and his crisis of faith with the fact that mutants have conquered death. And it has currently uh, wrapped up with the finale of uh, X-Men Onslaught Revelations, which was a one-shot. So, I'm going to recap the five issues of Way of X and the X-Men Onslaught Revelation, and just talk about my thoughts on the comics. So, Way of X Issue 1 was described by Marvel as the way to the future of X. Mutant kind has built a new Eden, but there are serpents in this garden. Some mutants struggle to fit in, some mutants turn to violence and death, and the children whisper of the patchwork man, singing in their hearts. Only one mutant senses the looming shadows, snared by questions of death, law, and love, only Nightcrawler can fight for the soul of Krakoa. Only he and the curious crew he assembles can help mutants defeat their inner darkness and find a new way to live. And that's a fairly good description of the series. Um, one of the opening lines, because throughout the entire series you see what looks like notes from a book, because Nightcrawler's not necessarily writing or rewriting a Bible or forming a religion, but he's trying to help guide mutantdom because it's a recurring theme about what's the value of life if death holds no value. So one of the opening lines he writes is, I hope to learn what we ought to believe. 
I learned instead how we ought to live. And it sets the tone for the entire run, confronting death, what it means for mutant kind, who has conquered it, or so we believe. The first issue involves the significance of dying, and that's a recurring theme, and how some of them, especially some of the kids, treat death like it's a joke. It's like, oh, you'll just be resurrected. And they kind of poke fun at those who still treat death like a big deal. In a similar way, high school kids kind of talk about sex. Oh, it's not that big. Everybody does it. There's no problem, you know? So, it kind of talks about that as it explores the concepts of death and what it means if you can't permanently die. The main character of this issue is Nightcrawler as he attempts to create a mutant faith of sorts. And featured heavily in the issue are characters like Pixie, Lost, who's a new mutant created for this run, Magneto, and Dr. Nemesis, with Legion appearing in the last few pages. And this is interesting because he actually kind of plays a prank on Magneto. And then Magneto sort of chastises him for it. You know, saying, like, it's weird that you're a man of God and I'm the one with faith in our society. Issue 2 is described as a villain revealed. The dark force hiding within Krakoa begins to show its true form. The answers are hidden within the mindscape. Kurt and others, one of the most dangerous mutants, is reborn. And through here, you kind of discover... You, you hear more hints of the Patchwork Man, and you discover who the Patchwork Man really is. And that would be Onslaught. My personal thoughts... It's like this issue is a bit trippy because so much of it kind of takes place in the mind. Parts of it include a legion who at this point is a metaphysical manifestation rather than a physical one going into Nightcrawler's mind and seeing his thoughts, his questions his doubts, and everything like that. And then, they try to discover his body. Which they find, at that point, it's only a brain. The team that is with him is just Legion, who again is inside his head, Pixie and Dr. Nemesis, where they find Legion's brain, and in order to stop it from ripping the universe in half, because Legion is that powerful and and kind of unpredictable, and if he doesn't have control of his body, bad things happen. 
in the background you see a smaller story thread being woven between a newly restored mutant named Lost and a former X-Men villain and henchman of multiple villainous bad guys, primarily Magneto, uh, Fabian Cortez. A few new revelations are shown uh, about Patchwork Man and Death and Rebirth as they ultimately destroy Legion's brain, have the five rebuild Legion's body, and Professor X says, I'm not going to put Legion's consciousness back into this body, but because Legion's consciousness is in Nightcrawler's head and not actually dead, he just does it himself. Upon his resurrection, he straight up tells Xavier and Magneto that he can smell the secrets on them, doesn't trust either of them, but will follow Nightcrawler, because uh, Nightcrawler has questions, but he never claims to know all the answers. Throughout the comic, you hear the phrase, a favor for a favor, repeated, and exploring exploring the concept of teamwork when you're not necessarily a team. Every member kind of has their own goals, and they realize that you can't achieve them with the help without the help of others. And it talks about how putting society first above personal need, or as was said throughout it when Dr. Nemesis was doing a breakdown of society, the we before me. And in there he talked about how studies have shown the average person can only maintain about 150 relationships. Max. So, in order for larger societies to form, you have to have generalized concepts to unite the people. While he doesn't necessarily believe in faith, he does believe that what Nightcrawler is going towards will help unite mutants. And, it's again, it's the we before me. So... Way of X issue 3's description is make more mutants. Uh, after the Hellfire Gala, Nightcrawler tries to root out the evil working destroy Krakoa by investigating its laws, starting with that sexy saxophone solo. And the reason they do that is because one of the three laws of Krakoa, and it was one that uh, Nightcrawler himself proposed was make more mutants. Now, when he suggested that, he was still very rooted in his religious thinking of intimate relationships, traditional families, raising them, and all that other stuff. Or even slightly untraditional, like adoption and all that. Like, But still, raising mutants as a family and using that to make more mutants. 
of course in a society where death isn't really a thing and because of that things like STDs aren't really things and everyone's kind of permanently young make more mutants leads to unintended consequences uh, one of those consequences surprise surprise sex leads to babies and there are a lot of newborn children on the island many of which became abandoned now this issue kinda of follows two main storylines and a subplot that kind of arcs its way throughout the series the first subplot is Nightcrawler as he first encounters Stacy X. For those of you who don't remember her, she was a mutant from the 90s who was well known for her sexual promiscuity. The big thing is, is while her powers heavily tie into that, it isn't necessarily sex, it's encourages people to take risks now the biggest risk a lot of people take is getting into relationships which is why she was always so sexualized but nightcrawler discovers her with a building that uh, krakoa makes for her which nightcrawler basically calls a hostel or a brothel and it turns out that Stacy X is taking care of all the abandoned newborn mutants. And Lost is actually there helping. The area she stays in becomes a place where people can feel connection. Sometimes people come there, have sex like rabbits, and leave, as how Stacy put it. Sometimes they just come there to talk for hours or just to be held. It's the risk of feeling that connection. But, and they also explain that Lost's powers don't really work on, chill, on babies. Because her powers are gravitational field manipulation. And since she doesn't have full control of it, it often throws people's inner ear balance off to the point of making them sick. Babies don't have the bone development in their ear that it basically makes them immune to her powers. The second story follows Pixie and Legion as they track down Onslaught. Pixie doesn't realize that's what Legion's motivation for helping her is, because Pixie was friends with Blindfold, who is Legion's girlfriend, and she would talk about how they would not necessarily engage in sex, but they became intimate through Legion's powers, like psychological complete connection. And uh, they encounter two other mutants, Loa and Mercury. And they can't really connect because any kind of stimulation activates Loa's ability, which can be 
borderline fatal to a lot of people. So they wanted to try, like, Legion connecting them that way. Legion agreed because he had a theory about it drawing out Onslaught. So after that incident, Pixie and Legion track down Onslaught, who heads over to where Nightcrawler and Stacy X were with Lost and Fabian Cortez. And it continues that storyline because Onslaught sort of triggers Lost to get angry at the sight of Fabian Cortez. And it hints at a past that they have with each other. Uh, issue 4 is described as Kill No Man. Some exceptions may apply. Nightcrawler must act fast to avoid catastrophes. The laws of Krakoa and physics are tested to their limits. Also a nice family bonding session with no violent repercussions. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. This is Xavier versus Legion in a boozed up tiki bar with the sanity of mutant kind at stake. This issue is easily my favorite issue up to this point. It, and we'll go into it here. It's it's where the main plotline really starts coming together. Legion, who now has his own personal bodyguards in the form of the Zorn brothers, because they're the only ones that are capable of just instantly vaporizing Legion's brain should he start losing control. And they're just up for the challenge. So it's kind of an unspoken bond and trust. They're like, hey, this is a challenge. He, they all know he's capable, but if it takes too long, you know, things go bad. And it's always nice to see the Zorn brothers get used. They engage in a conversation with Xavier that results in Onslaught triggering a conflict as he starts gaining more and more control over the mutants of Krakoa. That conflict results in Zorn, well, both Zorns and Legion, vaporizing Blob's Tiki Bar and killing 63 mutants, including Xavier himself. This meeting was followed by a Krakoan gate being implanted into Legion's head by the Zorn brothers, where he is making, as he quotes, a temple where the devil cannot whisper into your ear, the devil in this case being Onslaught. The second storyline follows Nightcrawler listening to the story of Lost and why Fabian Cortez triggers her. Turns out that during his days as one of the Acolytes and his religious crusade against the Flat Scans, or humans, uh, shortly after Lost's powers manifested, she was in the hospital, and Fabian Cortez attacked that hospital and killed her parents in front of her. And then from there, Nightcrawler 
confronts Fabian Cortez, there is a bit of an exposition page written by Dr. Nemesis talking about how the guy is psychologically stable, but there's still just, there's something wrong with him and that he just kind of creeps him out and then he got bored of watching him, so he started making chocolate. And this version of Dr. Nemesis, he's gotten a bit bored and he's growing psychedelic mushrooms out of his head, so you have to take everything Dr. Nemesis says with a grain of salt. So, Nightcrawler confronts Fabian as he is torturing Gorgon in front of a bunch of humans. Under the belief that I'm the only thing stopping Gorgon from killing these people. If I let go, all these people die. I didn't kill them, so I can't be punished. It's Gorgon. And it's, again, kind of goes into the selfishness, selfishness. And we've talked about how the whole we before me and the concept of bettering society throughout this series is a main plotline. Issue 5 is described as, this is the way. What happens when the third law of Krakoa is broken? What happens when all other solutions have failed? What happens when Nightcrawler finally finds the way? And this issue leads off, or leaves off, on a massive cliffhanger. And it's because it's to set up the Onslaught Revelation. But it's really the climax of the Way of X run. It's the build-up and goes into the payoff really well. You continue with the two separate views, but the story is significantly more tied in. Uh, while the victims of the Onslaught attack, which Legion and the Zorn Brothers killed were all being resurrected, the younger kids all had a simultaneously idea implanted by Onslaught to hold a party called the Crucible. Crucible being a major event on Krakoa where depowered mutants can actively fight powered mutants for the right to an honorable death so that they can be reborn with their powers intact. So, Crucible is a play on that, which is like a massive party, presumably with a lot of death. Legion, on the other hand, is continuing to build this temple within his mind. The Zorn brothers watch over him and protect him still as this is happening, because Legion needs to dedicate the majority of his energy to building this. Xavier, upon his resurrection, realizes that, well, doesn't realize Onslaught's behind it, just believes that Legion lost control and that was why all the mutants were killed, confronts the Zorn brothers and Legion's body, when he asked the Zorn brothers if Legion can hear him, they're like, well, we presume so. Most of his energy is being devoted to building. Well, building what? It's like, oh, we don't know. He's kept that secret. 
but you have to keep your hands and your mind where we can see them or we will obliterate you. Now, to put that in record, the Zorn brothers just threatened to kill Xavier if he tries anything funny. That takes massive balls, and they're both capable of backing it up, having, you know, a collapsing, uh, collapsing black hole and exploding supernova within their heads, and their power is basically controlling that. So yeah, they have the power to back it up, and Xavier couldn't touch it. But that whole time, Xavier rants to Legion saying, I hope you can hear this. You're on Mars right now. If you come back to Earth, I would avoid it. And if you die, I will personally make sure that you will never get resurrected. But during this speech, Legion's mind briefly connects with Xavier's without Xavier knowing and he figures out how Onslaught is getting his power. The whole time he's commuting, communicating everything he's doing and discovering to Nightcrawler telepathically while Nightcrawler's trying to perform what, restorative, what he calls restorative justice with Lost and Fabian Cortez. But it turns out Onslaught's power comes from the missing chunk of when they die. If their previous mind backup is on Monday and they die on a Wednesday, what happens to the space between then? That is where Onslaught is taking everything and using it to enhance his own power and inserting his own influence over everyone else. So from there we have Nightcrawler working on justice between Fabian and Lost. Onslaught strikes using his the piece of him in Fabian since he's been resurrected causing him to use his powers to the point of overloading Lost. Finally getting the point of what Nightcrawler's been saying the whole time. He's like, oh my god, I didn't do this. I didn't have control. What just happened here? And, of course, killing Lost, whose powers involve gravity control, resulted in Phobos, the moon of Mars, being pulled into Mars on a 10-minute trajectory to crash directly in the, into the planet, killing everyone there, including millions of mutants of Araco, who call Mars home. Nightcrawler gives Fabian the chance to be a hero by overloading Nightcrawler's powers to the point of death, but giving Nightcrawler the brief mo chance to use his powers to teleport the moon up to its natural orbit. But before he does that, he tells Fabian, the spark, when I get resurrected, remind me of the spark, and I will remember the revelation I've just had. 
because one of the key lines from Nightcrawler in this issue is, if death is meaningless, life has no meaning. And which fits the theme of this run altogether. Of course, the issue ends with Xavier putting, purposely putting Fabian into a coma before Nightcrawler can, is resurrected. Now, we have, and then it ends off with Nightcrawler getting resurrected and Xavier saying he fell into a coma. And we're not going to resurrect them. We can only give subversive elements so many chances. At this point, it's obvious that it's Onslaught manipula manipulating him rather than Xavier fully in charge. Xavier's a dick, but I think at this point, even that goes beyond Xavier. Now, we get into the Onslaught revelation. Described as, you have strayed from the way of X. The Onslaught is upon you. The X-Men's greatest foe. Mutant kind's primal evil. Slithers in the minds of its most senior leaders. Big Kid's whisper of the Crucible. A party to end all parties. A party to end everything. The seals are broken. The trumpets have sounded. Only a small band of eccentric mutants can hope to break this fall. Can Nightcrawler light the spark that will drive out the shadows? Or will Krakoa slip into the abyss? Now, this is the conclusion of Way of X, despite not being Way of X issue 6. And, but this book absolutely delivers. It starts off with Nightcrawler kidnapping Pixie into Legion's newly constructed temple called the Altar, which exists completely inside Legion's mind, and Legion's mind itself is technically a pocket reality, so it's gets added protection from various things such as psychic attacks from Onslaught. From here they exercise the demon of Onslaught out of her, realizing that her soul dagger is capable of removing the pieces of Onslaught from pretty much any mutant who's been resurrected. Off panel they uh off panel before between this book and the end of Way of X-5, they uh, save Lost and Fabian. Fabian does return with the whole Remember the Spark, which triggers Nightcrawler's revelation. And Nightcrawler and Pixie, as well as Legion, uh, rescue a small supporting cast of characters, including... The Young Mutant DJ, uh, Dust, Dr. Nemesis, and Dazzler. They interrupt the Crucible via hallucinogenic mushrooms growing out of Dr. Nemesis' head. And the Crucible is that 
big event planned by Onslaught where he could reveal his true power by killing all the mutants he's affected and preventing their resurrection, giving all their power to him. And instead, they lead, lead the party to the altar, where they say, well, we promised them the party to end all parties, we still deliver. Uh, in that party, Fabian performs the largest heroic act he's ever done, revealing his true self, why he's done what he's done, and kind of being a little pathetic, and he even gets called out on it by Dust, who says, I cannot forgive you because you are a pathetic being who can't forgive himself, but in this moment, I do not hate you. And in the process of all this, Cortez realizes that Despite being the hero of the story, he's still just a supporting character. The main hero of this is actually Dust, who discovers with help from Legion that her true power is being able to tie everybody together as she turns herself into this Dust inhabits every single person in the altar, giving them a shared mind, as Nightcrawler discusses, we are not perfect, we are still our flaws, and that makes us us. Without our flaws, we would not be here. And that it's okay as long as you learn to accept your flaws and to work on yourself, you'll be fine. And it kind of embodies the purpose of the altar, which is all minds become one. As they form a true connection with everyone else. And through this, they defeat Onslaught. The altar then kind of grows and becomes a place of training, of healing, a place to be alone if you need it, a place of love and health and respect. Or as Legion said, everything but a basketball court and that's just a matter of time. The most interesting part of this is at the end when Nightcrawler and Legion were discussing where they go from here. Nightcrawler suggests that they're going to be using the altar as a base because it's inside Legion's brain and that what they're going to do next is not going to make members of the Krakoan Quiet Council happy especially people like Xavier and you know Xavier, Sinister, Magneto guys who've always secured themselves power and they're both like yeah but that's that's not our problem they're going to form a group called the legionnaires 
The official roster hasn't been released, but the teaser image that they showed has Nightcrawler and Pixie. Presumably Legion plays a big part because their base of operations is literally in his head. But we see Juggernaut, who before this has not... He had a limited short run, but he was told at the end of it that even though he's always been a friend and ally to mutants and he is an ally of Krakoa, He's not a mutant, he's not welcome there. They've kind of relaxed those rules a little bit. Shogo, Jubilee's daughter, is not a mutant, doesn't contain the X gene, but she's allowed to live there. Northstar's husband, who's not a mutant, is allowed to live there. They've kind of relaxed those rules. So we're assuming that Juggernaut is now allowed limited access to Krakoa, or at least the use of the gate to get to the altar. Uh, we also see oft-forgotten former X-Men member, Forget-Me-Not, whose power is basically just being forgotten whenever he's not on panel. And I'm not joking, that's his power. If I pull it up here... I will find the Marvel database, forgotten or forget-me-not powers. Imperceptibility. He's incapable of being perceived or remembered by virtually all individuals when he is not directly within their view. His presence, his existence, and any memories of him completely disappear. He is also uh, unable to be seen telepathically. It also, this ability also allows uh, technology and targeting devices to fail working on him. So, like, that's his power. So, he's going to be on the team, it would look like as well as Blindfold. Blindfold is interesting because she was purposely not resurrected on Krakoa because of the whole law about they're not allowed to resurrect precogs or people who can see the future. Which always didn't quite make sense because Cable was still allowed and he has limited precog abilities, but it's basically their justification for not resurrecting Mystique's wife, uh, Destiny. So, we're not sure how this is going to play out. But it's possible that she's more of a psychic projection from Legion, and his contribution to the team on field missions. Either way... I am looking forward to this new Legionnaires title, and this run has been incredibly enjoyable for me. Uh, yeah, that is it for this episode. I will be back next week 
with a new topic, some more news, and again, we're going to be getting this our podcasts up more regularly again now that we've had this mini hiatus. We did have some technical issues. We recorded two episodes that, thanks to technical issues, never recorded properly aspects of them. Parts of them were missing in the middle or voice distortion and other stuff. So, unfortunately, we had lost that. Tombstone is not going to be on the show for a while, we mentioned earlier. Obviously, he's still part of the Metas and Mutants, and that's not going to change. I'm still going to let him know when I plan on recording, so that way, if he does have the time to pop in for an episode, even if it is for only half an hour or so, it won't be a problem. He'll be... He's more than welcome. He is still part of the team. And when he's got his stuff in order the way he needs to handle it, he's going to be back. So from here, this is... Don't forget, we're going to check out our other multi-world entertainment stuff. We have the Rise podcast on Sundays if you're into boxing. We have our Black Culture Geeks on Saturdays, which is just, you know, general talk. Addie's Game Room for people interested in game streaming. We have Jaded Nerd on YouTube for pop culture and celebrity gossip. And yeah, from all of us here to all of you listening... We are Metas and Mutants. Peace out.